Well, good evening, everyone. It's nice to be here with you. Let's uh, pray that God would help us to think and reflect well on the passage which we've just heard then. Let me pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, please help us to understand and appreciate what your word has to say. Help us to uh, believe it and rely on it and live it out with your power and strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you consider the world in which you live, as you look around at life, do you see it as a place marked by love, light and wisdom? Is that how you see our world? Love, light and wisdom. Now, I suspect if we reflected on it for a few moments, we'd probably come up with an answer along the lines of, well, you know, yes and no. Think about love, for example. We can look around the world and we can see love in a lot of places. You see a mother holding her baby and you think, oh, yeah, there is love. Or we hear of people walking for Oxfam or running for Fred Hollow's foundation or doing push-ups for mental health and we think, well, you know, there's love. There's, there's love in the world. But we can equally say that the world is not marked by love because there are many things which aren't like that. Uh, and so we often sadly see relational breakdowns of various sorts between husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and parents and kids and employers and employees, etc, etc. And even the most likeable people can sometimes actually be, be pretty selfish. Um, I don't know whether any of you are into the British sitcom, where's Liz and her British sitcom, there we go. Yes, Minister, yes, Prime Minister, I don't know whether you've ever watched that, I, I like it, you probably haven't, you may have, I'm not quite sure. But the three main characters in Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister, I find really, really quite likeable, I'd like to meet them. But they're all essentially really, really selfish people as well, at the same time. And that's what life is like, you know, we're flawed individuals. Now, I could make similar comments about the presence or absence or otherwise of not just love, but also light and wisdom as well. Often in life, we'll see love, light and wisdom functioning together. And I sometimes think when we see the human response to natural disasters like fires or floods, where governments and communities and individuals are all working together, there seems to be a lot of love, of light and of wisdom on display. But then we can see other events in the world, like the storming of the Capitol building in Washington in January last year, which is you know, still in the news, and we think, boy, there's an event which lacked love, lacked light, and certainly lacked wisdom uh, as well. And we can even go bigger scale as we reflect on our society. Um, if any of you heard, I think I was on the video screens last week, if you heard me um, uh, then, you would know that I suggested that one social commentator has said that the Western world today is marked by ideas of autonomy and authenticity, this idea of do what you want to do, be who you want to be, you know, doing what you want to do, that's autonomy, being who you want to be, that's authenticity and that's what our culture is marked by and I hear that and I sort of think, oh yeah, that's sort of what life is like but when you stop and reflect on it, doing what you want to do and being who you want to be, um, where's our concern for others in that? Where's our concern for God in that? It's not there, is it? God and others don't get a mention, it's doing what we want to do, being who we want to be, it's, it's, it's essentially quite selfish and if love is about a concern for others, doing what you want to do, being who you want to be, lacks love, doesn't it? Now, a lack of love, light and wisdom is not just an issue today, it was also an issue in the first century in the city of Ephesus, which is a city in which the Christians, to which this letter was first written, uh, well, that's where they were. Now, if that was a problem then and today, how might we respond to this lack of love, light and wisdom? 
Well, this evening we're continuing our series in Ephesians, we're up to chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, which was just read for us. And you may recall the first half of Ephesians is all about the wonderful truths of the gospel, the stuff which Jesus has done for us, it's incredible stuff. And then the second half is about, well, okay, in the light of that, how do we live? And so we're in one of these, how do we live chapters. Now, it will absolutely overwhelm some of you with excitement to know that there is a Greek word called peripateo. And this word means to walk, to live or to conduct oneself. And this word, peripateo, occurs three times in this passage. It occurs in verse 2, where it says, walk, peripateo, in the way of love. And it occurs in verse 8, where it says, live, or it could have been rendered walk, peripateo, live as children of light. And then in verse 15, where it says live, or it could have been walk, peripateo, not as unwise, but as wise. So I've divided up the passage in terms of those three exhortations. And so my outline, uh, which some of you will have picked up and is up there on the screen, verses 1 to 7, I'm going to talk about or consider walk in the way of love. Uh, and then verses 8 to 14, walk as children of light. And then verses 15 to 20, walk as wise people. The last bit will be very brief, I'm going to focus mainly on the first two. Let's start by thinking about uh, walking the way of love, point one. And uh, the passage opens by urging us to do what many of us were urged to do in Sunday school with the old Sunday school song which goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so we're urged to look to Jesus in the first two verses. Let me remind you of their contents. It says, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children. And walk, that's peripateo, in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's basically saying we're to love like Christ, which is to love self-sacrificially. Sometimes I have the privilege of, of spending time with couples who are about to get married, preparing them for marriage in various ways, and I sometimes, when talking to them, define love as a good definition being as a a self-sacrificial commitment to the good of another person, self-sacrificial commitment to the good of another person and that's what we see exemplified in Jesus' death for us, self-sacrificial commitment to the good of another person and I think that's a very good definition of love generally uh, in, in society and that's really, when you think about it, very much un doing what you want to do, being who you want to be. It's focusing on your concern for another person in an effort to honour God, not just about ourselves. So, um, why should we want to love like that? Why do we want to display that sort of love? Can I give you a few suggestions? Firstly, it glorifies God, that's the best reason. Secondly, it's best for others, but thirdly, actually, loving others that way is actually best for us ourselves, perhaps counterintuitively, but it is. Now, this sort of love needs to be displayed in lots of areas of our life, and uh, particularly in the area of sexual expression or sexuality. Uh, this is an area which we can very easily slip from a self-sacrificial attitude into a self-indulgent attitude and this is what verses 3 and 4 are speaking to us about. Just have a look with us, if, if, with me if you could. It says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, it's probably referring to sexual greed there, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So Paul is warning us against displaying sexual immorality in our actions, but also in our words, what we say, what things we talk about. 
Now, in terms of actions, he's basically warning us against any form of sexual expression outside the context of a male-female one-on-one marriage. Now, as soon as I say that, you will realise how clearly out of step that attitude is with contemporary culture. Because in contemporary culture, uh, there is same-sex marriage, there are de facto relationships, there is various forms of sleeping around, there's serial monogamy, there's pornography, and there's a whole host of other things which are pretty much par for the course. And we're all quite used to, I suspect. Then in terms of sexually immoral speech, there's vulgar talk, dirty jokes, innuendo, etc., etc. Now, at this point in the sermon, I'm not going to read all your minds because I can't anyway. I imagine if I could get inside your minds, there'd be quite a range of responses to what I'm talking about at this point. Some people might be thinking, Amen, good, I'm glad we're addressing this issue, get up and preach about it. That'll be some people. Some people might be thinking, oh, this guy sounds like an absolute prude, what a killjoy, you know, this, this guy's really annoying me and there could be a range in between. Similarly, there could be some people sitting here who are thinking, oh, this is an interesting topic to mull over tonight. And others down here will be thinking, wow, this is something I am really struggling with at the moment. This is a real ordeal for me. And there'll be everything in between. Now, can I say that if the area of thinking about sexual immorality is a real, you know, it's a real struggle for you in some sense, can I say that the best thing to do is to look to God for support and strength and assistance and there will be other Christians, if you can know any, any you know, sensible Christians, you may be able to get some help from them, that's if it's a real struggle for you. If you're thinking though, oh this guy sounds like a real prude, um, I could make a few comments to, to you. Um, it's not an unusual view for some people to think that Christians are very uptight about sex, etc. There was a very famous French philosopher by the name of um, Paul Michel Foucault, our last century, and if you've ever been to university and did anything vaguely arty or sociological in the last 30 years, you would have heard of Foucault. And he said once that Christianity's most intolerably burdensome legacy, legacy is the idea of sex as sin. And many people think that Christians think that sex is a horrible thing and it's a necessary evil and we don't like it very much. But can I say that it's not the biblical view and it's probably not the view of most Christians in history either. If you read through the Bible, God is very clearly pro-sex, he invented it and he knows how it's best expressed. If he's the expert, why not listen to the expert? Why settle for something second best? And secondly, many people, Christians, are very interested in sexuality and in fact there are Christian sexologists. Uh, in fact, there's a very good one uh, in Australia who came and talked at our church here a few years ago called Patricia Wirakun uh, and she had a lot of good stuff to say, some of you may have been at the seminar, I'm, I'm not sure. Anyway, there's a few thoughts there. Now, uh, trying to be sexually moral as a Christian would have been a real challenge for Christians back in first century Ephesus. Not just because it's a challenge for Christians in any generation, anywhere, but because Ephesus was home to a place called the Temple of Artemis, as I think we've talked about in recent times, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And Artemis was a goddess and one of her things was she was a fertility goddess. And I've read that one of the things sometimes associated with the worship of Artemis was to engage in sexual orgies. Okay, so there's your context which you're living in as a Christian. Now, I can imagine with this sort of religious behaviour being there on offer, that could have presented a few challenges 
for Christians who'd moved out of that sort of lifestyle to try and live in an appropriate way. So it wouldn't have been easy in first century Ephesus. But can I say it's also a challenge for us today in 21st century Australia as well. And there are some particularly distinctive challenges we face as Christians today. And I'm going to give you a little bit of sociology, which will interest some of you and may bore the socks off some of you. If you're bored, just look at me interestedly for the next two minutes. And if you're interested, just look at me interestedly for the next two minutes. But um, many members of our staff here at church have read over the last well, term or so, a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by a Christian academic by the name of Carl Truman. Really interesting book. And uh, in one of the things he does in his book is he plots the last few hundred years of Western culture such that we now arrive at a culture today in which I guess the expression of sexual desires and sexual self-identity is considered absolutely essential and totally central to our self-understanding of ourselves such there's almost nothing more important than our sexual identity and our sexual expression it's almost like the number one thing there is in discussions uh, about our, our, our culture how did we get to be like that? Because it's not always been like that. Well, here's a quick thumbnail sketch. There was a guy called Karl Marx. Karl Marx viewed society in economic terms and he saw that people were being oppressed economically and the people who were oppressed economically needed liberation. And generally speaking, this sort of led to communism, which pretty much failed in most parts of the world in the second half of last century. About 100 years ago, there was a guy called Sigmund Freud, who viewed uh, humanity very much in terms of sexual desires, and that was very decisive for who we saw ourselves as people. Now, what happened in the mid-last mid century is that people who were Marxists sort of got together with people who were interested in Freud, and they weren't so much interested in economic oppression, but in sexual oppression. They felt, no, people are being sexually oppressed, and they need to be sexually liberated. Is this starting to ring a few bells? I don't know. Now, this movement pretty much had existed in academic circles, according to Mr Truman, who we read, and uh, academics would say things like, you know, sexual morality was designed to maintain the economic status quo, you know, exciting things like that, or our biology is a form of tyranny, or the tyranny of the biological family needs to be broken. Now, university, academia, whatever. But these views started to filter into the general culture through the arts, the visual arts, Salvador Dali and the like, through music, through literature, etc., such that it then became part of the way people thought generally. Then in the 1950s, um, there was a guy called Hugh Hefner who started up Playboy magazine, and the whole idea of pornography, which was very much once very under the counter and on the side, started to enter into more of mainstream respectability. And things went on from there, such that, you know, people have now referred to the pornification of popular culture today. So you can be at the gym doing your exercises and there's the MTV screen and it's really quite distracting on occasions if you try and do your exercises and there's some, you know, various film clips of various sorts. Motorway billboards can be distracting when you're driving down the M2 or the M4, etc, etc, etc. So that's where we find ourselves today. So as Christians, if we're trying to live in a sexually moral way and think in a sexually moral way, we're swimming against quite a strong tide and we need uh, God's assistance. And it's not always easy. So if you don't find it always easy, you know, join the club. Now, uh, I had a Christian friend of mine, very uh, good friend of mine, uh, and when he was uh, younger, he was dating a girl from church. They assumed they were going to get married. I guess they felt a bit of pressure. They ended up sleeping together. And eventually, though, they broke up. They didn't get married. And they both went away and married separate people. Now, the guy who I'm still in contact with, um, he once told me that he really regretted 
what he did before he was married with this other lady. Uh, but look, he's repented of it, he's moved on, he's in a really good marriage now, uh, things are going well, but he has that regret. So what I'm trying to say is that this is a going issue uh, for good, you know, church-going people at uh, any age. Now, can I say that if you're struggling in this area, uh, once again, you can get support. Uh, if you've made mistakes in this area, um, can I say that we repent of it and we try and get help uh, so that we won't do it again. But, you know, we're all, we just do our best and pray to God for help. Just a few thoughts there. Now, uh, just a few reflections. Uh, Counter-culturally, I would say that you don't need to express yourself sexually to be fully human, okay? That's wrong. I mean, Jesus never married. He never expressed himself sexually in that way, but Jesus was certainly fully human, right? Um, and also, uh, by living in a sexually moral way, it actually doesn't close down things, I think it opens things up. It really promotes good cross-gender relationships. I mean, consider Jesus in the first century, counterculturally, he counted women as some of his best friends and closest followers, you know, Mary Magdalene. He was friends with Mary and Martha, as in Mary, Martha and Lazarus, right? Because, um, I guess, of the way he sought to live there, it really opened up those relationships. Now, a number of years back, I read a book on youth ministry, which left quite an impression on me. And uh, one of the sentences it said was that, um, in the context of youth ministry, the brother-sister relationship, you know, just friends between men and women, you know, youth ministry, wherever, the brother-sister relationship that the Bible envisages is something more beautiful and enduring than many teenagers can imagine. You know, it, it's, if we're living in a sexually moral way as best we can, with God's strength, uh, we can have great friendships in youth groups, young adults, whatever age, between men and women. Once again, it doesn't close things down, it opens things up. So, why should we be motivated to avoid sexual immorality and to uh, live in a moral way? Well, once again, to glorify God, is good for others, is good for us. And then, verse 5 of this passage gives an additional reason, which is probably not one I might have necessarily come up with, but it's there, so we're going to talk about it, because God knows better than me. And that is, another motivation is to avoid judgment. Look at verse 5. It says, For of this you can be sure... No immoral, impure or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, that's someone who puts something else in God's place, has any inheritance in the Kingdom of Christ and of God. Wow, what is that getting at? Uh, it seems to say that no immoral person will enter the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, can I say what this is not referring to and what I think it is referring to? It's not basically saying that if we have ever slipped up in this area, in our thought life or in practicality or whatever, that we've lost our salvation. Uh, because all of us fall short of the glory of God. You know, if we, if, we, if we make a mistake or we sin here or we engage in wrongdoing, we repent, uh, we're forgiven, we move on and we get help if we need to. But what's being talked of here is the person who slips into sexual sin and persists in it unrepentantly and doesn't care what God thinks and just is going to live that way anyway. I don't care about God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to be who I want to be, etc. Uh, that person is, is in strong danger of judgment, in fact, according to this. So, I guess there's that warning as well. Now, why does God say this? Not because He's a killjoy, because He is the world expert on sex and sexuality. He doesn't want it to be ruined, He wants it to be um, taken seriously and, and <laughs> best experienced. Anyway, so there's that. 
Now, verse 7 uh, then says that we should not be partners with the sexually immoral. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be friends with those whose morality differs to us. I mean, gee, that would cut me off from a lot of friendships, and no doubt you as well. But it's saying we shouldn't be partners to them at the extent that we participate with them in their wrongdoing. So, if your friends invite you, Dale, let's come around and have a... Okay, um, <laughs> people at my cricket club, you know, said, hey, do you want to come around, we're going to have a porn and prawn evening. Uh, okay, I'm not going to go to that, right? Um, actually, I didn't, they actually didn't bother to invite me, I don't think, because they knew I wouldn't go. Um, but anyway, you know, so we don't participate, but it doesn't mean we can't be friends with people like that. And this is what verses, one of the things that verses 8 to 14 are talking about, where it says, walk as children of light. We should be, I guess, in the world, but not of the world, being light, being salt, as Jesus says in Matthew 5 himself. Now, look at verse 8 with me, if you will. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, this is peripateo, uh, as children of light. Now, note here that it doesn't say you were once in darkness, but you're now in light. It says you were once darkness, and you now are light. It's not talking about our context, it's talking about who we essentially are. And if we are Christians, we're now described as light. That is our identity. Now, light is a wonderful thing to be described as, because what a beautiful thing light is. You know, you see the sunrise, the rays of the early morning sun going over the landscape, it's, it's very attractive. Nighttime, you look at a light of a fire, it's very captivating. Christians are supposed to be light, different, captivating, positive people in our world. Uh, and so we're compared, we're actually described here uh, as light. Now, we can stand out as light in all sorts of areas of life, but since we're talking about sexual morality, I'm going to stick with it for a moment and give a few examples from rugby league. You weren't expecting that, were you? Okay, um, some of you may have heard of a famous rugby league player from the 1990s called Jason Stevens. Very good player, very tough guy, good player, played for Australia. He became a Christian when he was a very good player in his 20s. And then not long after becoming a Christian, or, or some while afterwards, he came out and said that as a Christian, he was no longer going to have sex until he was married. Obviously, to the person he was married to. And so, um, this actually went quite public, because it's not the sort of thing you expect rugby league players to publicly say. And it attracted a fair bit of media attention, some people sort of laughed at him, I think a lot of people were surprised, uh, and, and, but I think people generally respected him for it. Uh, what was he doing? He was being light in that area and it probably wasn't the easiest thing to do either. Now to be light we need to avoid deeds of darkness, it says in verse 11, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. Now what does it mean to expose deeds of darkness? Well the sheer act of living as a Christian in any area, sexual immorality or morality or otherwise, we will often be different to those whom we're with and so we as expose the way that other people live as being different. But it doesn't just say that we will expose other people for being different and perhaps living in a different way, but we can actually influence them for good. People don't like being exposed, but perhaps they like being influenced for good. Because did you notice verse 13? Have a look at that again. Verse 13, if you've got your Bibles or your devices open, says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Okay, there's the exposure idea. And everything that is illuminated becomes light. Now, that seems to suggest that once dark people can be made light, 
when they come into contact with light, suggesting that Christians can influence, well, God through Christians can influence others in such a way that they may even become Christians themselves. Let's get back to rugby league. Another rugby league player from the 1990s was a guy called Brad Mackay, played for the Dragons, or the St George Dragons. He too became a Christian when he was in his 20s, and when he became a Christian, he was playing for Australia at the time, I think, um, his lifestyle changed. The way he played football on the field changed, the way he lived off the field uh, changed. Now, there was a young guy at his club who wasn't a Christian at that point called Jason Stevens, who I referred to earlier, and he saw the difference in Brad Mackay's life and apparently asked him questions about it and spoke to Brad and also the club chaplain uh, and eventually he became a Christian himself, as I mentioned earlier. So, here you've got Brad Mackay being light, he is, I guess, exposing the difference in Jason Stevens, who at that point wasn't light, but eventually Jason Stevens becomes light himself. Do you see the idea? The positive influence uh, that we can have on, on others. What's the motivation for being light? Well, glorifies God, helps others, best for us. But here's another reason here again. Since we're light, we should be what we are or who we are. Look at verse 8. Now you are light in the Lord, live as children of light. This is who you are, live as who you are. Now, I've heard an interesting account of what often happens to people when they join the army. Now, I'm not that informed on the army, so I may get some of the terminology wrong, but you should get the general gist of it. A person goes to join the army, they train for about a year, and then sometime during that process, perhaps near the end or near the end, they get accepted into the regiment and they're given, I don't know, a beret or some other symbolic item, and they're told, you are now part of this regiment, think of yourself as part of this regiment, live as part of this regiment, live in a way which will bring honour to the regiment, <laughs> or, or words to that effect. Now, apparently this can be quite transformative, people who join the army, and you hear things like, you know, someone will say, perhaps, if it's a bloke, the guy's mother, oh, it's amazing, he just turned, he just went from being a boy into a man, or, you know, it's amazing, it's as if he grew up overnight, or it's amazing, he's a totally different person. What's the change? He sees himself as being part of the regiment, he wants to live as part of that regiment. Now, if we're Christians, we're part of something even, I mean, the army is important and is worthy of a lot of respect, but as Christians, we're part of something even better than the army, we're part of God's family. We are light, and so we should live as people who are light, be who we are. Let me um, just make a few very brief final comments uh, on verses 15 to 20, on walking as wise people, and I'm not going to do any of these points justice, but I'll just draw your attention to the fact that these things are here. Verse 15 says, be very careful then how you live, there's peripeteo again, not as unwise but as wise. Now, who, who doesn't want to be a wise person? I think we all do. Now, what are some of the things that wisdom will look like? Well, verse 16 says, make the most of every opportunity. It's basically saying we should make the most of our time as Christians, we shouldn't waste our life. God has given us a certain amount of years or months, hopefully years on this planet, let's make sure that they count for eternity. There was a book written a number of years ago by a famous American Christian called John Piper, it was called Don't Waste Your Life and I've not read it but it was apparently about um, giving, trying to give God glory in every area of our life, making our life count, don't waste it. Passage continues, verse 17, it says that we, should, we are urged to understand God's will, uh, not to be foolish. How do we understand God's will? Obviously, a greater awareness of 
and trusting God's word. Now, we often talk at this church about how important it is to know God's word and to trust it and rely on it, um, so I'll move on. The last few verses urge us to be filled with the Spirit, not alcohol. The Spirit being God's Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity who comes into our lives when we become Christians and we're told to be filled with the Spirit. Let me tell you four interesting grammatical things about the phrase, be filled in the Spirit. The verb, be filled, firstly, it's in the imperative mood, which means it's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's not be filled with the Spirit if you feel like it, it's be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, it's in the plural form. So it's not just addressed to a few people, sort of like you and you and you, it's addressed to everyone, all of us. Thirdly, it's in the passive voice. It's not something we do, it's something God does in us. So how do we help to be God to fill us with the Spirit? Well, I guess we don't resist Him. We don't do things which grieve the Spirit. We seek to live in a way which pleases Him. And fourthly, it's in the present tense, which means it's continuous, it's ongoing. Every day, we should seek to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may not know this, but if you were around in the 1980s and 1990s, some of us would remember that some churches were saying that you get the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian, but there's this second experience you have as a Christian when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's this discernible second experience thing. I don't think it's talking about that. What it's talking about here is this ongoing process whereby every day we seek to be filled with God's Spirit. What will that look like? Well, it goes on to talk about lives of fellowship, worship and thanksgiving. And also, I'd say that the Spirit is very closely associated with God's Word. We can see that in Scripture. I could say more about that, but not right now. Let me conclude. What is this passage all about? Well, it's about how we walk, how we live, how we conduct ourselves. And remember, this is all in response to the Gospel. It says here that if we're Christians, we shouldn't walk in immorality, darkness and foolishness, but rather so that we can glorify God so that we can serve others, so that we do what's best for ourselves, so that we avoid judgment, so that we can be who we are, we should walk in love, light and wisdom. So I'd suggest that the big idea for this passage is Christian living is about love, light and wisdom. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we would live as children of light, that we would be light, that we would display love, that we would display light and we would display wisdom in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.